Welcome to Filmstrip, movie reviews presented by Continuous Play Podcast. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. I'm Ron. And this is our review of Shaft. Wow. Starring Richard Roundtree, Moses Gunn, Charles Keofi, and directed by Gordon Parks. Released in 1971 on a budget of $500,000, grossed over $13 million at the box office. Why are we doing Shaft, Ron? It's February. Well, uh, as you know, as everyone knows, February is Black History Month, and Shaft is one of the most noteworthy of the black exploitation genre of films. And I've been on you for since I started doing the podcast that we need to do black exploitation history month. And finally my enthusiasm got the better of your good sense. And we are engaging in just such an activity. Yes, we are. We'll, we'll run down all the films we're going to do later at the end. If you haven't heard us talk about them on other shows yet, but we're starting with shaft 1971 Shaft. Now, I actually owned the DVD to the 2000 Shaft, the remake with Samuel L. Jackson. I shouldn't say remake. It's more just like the continuation because Roundtree's in that movie. Uh, but I, I knew of Shaft. I think everybody knows Shaft, that, that theme song that I kind of mimicked there at the opening. I, everybody knows that thing. I mean, I think Shaft is one of those recognizable pieces. I'll be honest with you, though, for years. I thought Shaft was a television show that I had missed. I didn't realize it was a, a movie and, and all that, but uh, wow, what well, a film it is. It's funny you say that because there was a Shaft TV series. Oh, okay, so I'm not wrong then. I thought I remembered that. I didn't look it up. So Yeah, in like uh, 73 or 74, they did uh, like a a couple episodes, I think, or a pilot in like six episodes or something. Uh, on cbs and richard roundtree came back to play shaft cbs wow (laughs) yeah not the network i would have guessed uh for this but okay so i'll tell you i think about networks as i know them today they were very different places back in the 70s and good grief i mean america was a different place in the 70s for goodness sakes i mean we're going to talk about new york a lot in this but you and i were talking offline it's like remember when new york was dirty and scary you know, because as a kid, that's all I knew New York to be. And then Rudy Giuliani came along and now it's all corporate. So. Yeah, that was the uh, that's been the most disappointing part of my uh, various trips to New York that I've taken. It's that there uh, uh, there were no muggings. Uh, I, I didn't see I didn't even see any rats, which was I expected oh, to see rats. Did you see but any no. alleys where Jason was hanging around with some toxic sewage at least? No, no toxic sewage. Uh, maybe I didn't go far enough into the Bronx for that, but <laughs> oh, that's what that. Yeah. So, well, you know, it's just off Times Square, so <laughs> where, where all that goes down. But yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, it's this was a different world completely, and it's hard to talk about it and not talk about the obvious politics of it. And we, and we will get into that. But Shaft, though, man, it's one of those things that like. I watched this movie and I I had seen it before. It just been a long time. And again, I I thought it was a television show and you, you told me that yes, indeed it was, but I don't know how this wasn't like 
multiple films and like this wasn't the diehard of the 70s or something. Maybe it's because Death Wish came out and that's what we latched onto. But man, this movie's in the same vein as that kind of movie. Well, there were two Shaft sequels in addition to the TV show. Uh, there's that 2000 Shaft reboot slash continuation with Samuel L. Jackson playing Shaft's nephew. And there is a, at least there was in production for a while, there was a Son of Shaft with uh, Richard Roundtree and Samuel L. Jackson both coming back. Hmm. Uh, I, don't, to, I, don't, I don't think that ever happened, though. So they, they never no, got it's, that. No, it's one. like happening right now. Oh, they are doing that now? So. Uh, yeah, it was supposed to come out. Uh, they announced the title in August of 2017. Okay. Uh, they've cast like. Uh, the son of Shaft. There's a director attached. Uh, this dude pl- named Tim Sto- Tim Story. Yeah, I know Tim Story. Who's playing? Who's playing Son of Shaft? Uh, it's this guy Jesse Usher. Uh, he was on. Um, he's in Independence Day Resurgence. He's playing Will Smith's son. Yes, I remember that. He was playing Will Smith's son better than Will Smith's actual son does. And so, yeah, I remember that. So, um, yeah, and he's going to be in uh, the Creed two. They're they're filming Creed two now. Yeah, yeah. So it's okay, because my first guess would be like, is Michael B. Jordan in that? You know, because it seems like tailor made for him because he looks like Richard Roundtree younger. But we'll get into him in a, in a few weeks, I guess. But yeah, no, I'm talking about. I don't know how this. There weren't sequels to this in the seventies. You know, th- yeah, th- we were doing sequels in the seventies. Like I don't well, know how were- we didn't do that. Well, there were two. The, they just weren't good. <laughs> oh, okay. So you're telling me there were other ones besides the Shaft and Son of Shaft that you mentioned. Before. Yeah. Okay. Uh, oh, Shaft's Big Score. Uh, Shaft's Big Score came out like a year after this. Oh. And then two years later, I think uh, Shaft Goes to Africa came out. Ooh. That, yeah, those don't sound. I don't, I'm glad I didn't know they existed because I'm going to pretend like they don't. <laughs> because uh, that, that, Neither one of those sound very interesting. I'm sorry, it's Shaft in Africa. Same difference. So yeah. I mean, what, <laughs> I mean, really, was he going to do take diamond smugglers on? Let me guess. So because what else would he do? So, but anyway, uh, no uh, immigrant I, immigrant smugglers. But yes. Oh, okay. There we go. So see, still topical. So go watch it, folks, if you want to. But we're here to review Shaft from 1971, and I ran across this one. I don't. It was on. Had to be on cable one day or something like that, and I just I happened to watch it like when I don't know I, I was probably in high school or college I can't remember when I first saw Shaft, but I've always kind of I feel like I've always sort of known what Shaft is probably because of that darn theme song, and growing up being a guitar player, everybody tells you what a wah pedal is, and you know when they look for example Exhibit A of what that is, you just do the Shaft theme, and I'm like, oh that that sound okay so I feel like I've always known this movie and then you know again I watched it you know that one time and then watching it again for this review but I was I remembered almost nothing about it other than I remembered a part where somebody flew out a window I couldn't remember if Shaft threw him out the window or they jumped or how that how that went down but there was like a supermaning <laughs> out a window and then Shaft um always talking on payphones, which man talk about a different world wow i remember payphones and having to keep changing my car all the time so yeah. <laughs> but but i mean really i mean that's how people discuss but i was blown away watching this by one just how gritty it is and how violent and 
I, you know, I, I guess I, I've mispainted the past by thinking that everything got really uber violent when, you know, Saw came around, but that's not true. I mean, there were, there were, I, mean, I remember Walking Tall being a really violent film. This movie is in the same vein as that. It almost looks the same. It's just with African American leads versus uh, a white sheriff in Tennessee. Which that's an, that's a really interesting comparison to, uh, Walking Tall, by the way. Uh, but yeah, this was a staple on. Uh, I know it played a couple of times on Monster Vision, or Joe Bob's Hollywood Saturday Night, or whatever TNT was calling the Joe Bob Briggs um, experience. And I know they showed this one, and I think they showed uh, Shaft in Africa. Uh, TNT used to show lots of crazy stuff before it became your home for. CSI repeats or NCIS reruns or whatever they're showing now. And the Shawshank Redemption every five minutes. So um, they're either showing the Shawshank Redemption, a Christmas story, or a CSI. <laughs> That's that entire show it, uh, thing now, especially since they got out of the wrestling business. But you know, for a while, that's what they had. But anyway, um, they never have known how to program that channel so <laughs> properly. It used to do Gone with the Wind reruns and James Bondathons, too. I remember those. Those were like spring and fall things. But uh, yeah, Shaft to me, man, um, I you know, I, I've again, knowing the basics of the story and, and the background and things. I went in with a little bit of knowledge, but kind of went in as about as cold as I could. I, I actually watched an original trailer from back in the day. It's on YouTube. And I, I mean, wow, you know, those things have changed quite a bit before Don LaFontaine's <laughs> voice got a hold of them and, and many other things, but like the bad jump cutting and just it, random scene plucked out of nowhere. I'm like, man, it didn't take much to get people to go to the film back in the day. <laughs> But I was like, well, it probably cost a quarter. So, yeah, that's what people did. You know, this is not that big a deal. And so I remember watching this going, I'm like, okay, you know, crime drama, you know. And I got to say, um, I mean, again, I, I threw Walking Tall out there. But, I mean, there's so many of the 80s lone cop on a bender, you know, movies that owe themselves a lot to the theme of, not the theme of, but the, the thematic elements of Shaft. Well, this was a, a huge success for MGM, uh, so that's not really a, a huge surprise. Oh, I mean, uh, yeah, thirteen million dollars on five hundred grand. I mean, holy cow! Yeah, if that, and uh, they didn't really have to do a ton of marketing to it uh, for at least to get the word out in like the African American community. I know that they hired uh, a black PR firm to publicize it. Wow, that's interesting. So, you and know, it was, it, and it was kind of a, it was kind of a critical, like a, a really well respected movie critically, mm -hmm. and it had a big crossover white audience too. I can see why. There's a lot in this too, like that's a again. Now we look back and call it the gritty '70s, but we didn't know what that's what it was at the time. But I mean, this was in the same line of of. You know what we think of when we think of the crime dramas of that era, and uh, I mean it's a there's a yeah, lot that goes a, on. Yeah, it's almost like a a, a black Serpico. Yeah, that's a good that's a good comparative. I was sitting here trying to think of one, and that uh, yeah, black Serpico. That's a good. I actually re, re watched that uh, recently again, and doesn't hold up. Doesn't hold up as well as this does, and some other things do. Like it, 
you, you kind of want to punch Al Pacino in the face at some point, even though he's <laughs> even though he's doing the right thing. It's like, shut up, <laughs> you know, like he just talks too much. But anyway, that that's what you did back in the days because you didn't have uh, CGI dinosaurs to throw into everything. So uh, since we don't have any of that, Ron, why don't you tell people though? Because I have a feeling there's a good bit of our audience that knows of Shaft that's never seen it. So tell people what this movie's about. Uh, sure will. After a cool opening walk down 42nd Street and a brief conversation with Detective Vic Androsi, two goons drop into Shaft's office to pay him a visit. One goon goes to jail, and the other goes for a trip to the morgue after flying out of Shaft's window. Here's the scoop, you dig? I keep screwing it up. It's fine. Yeah, no, it's fine. <laughs> it's okay. Go for it. All right. Take three. <laughs> Bumpy Jonas's daughter has been kidnapped, and there's only one cat that Harlem's dope kingpin can turn to. And that's one bad mother. Shut your mouth. Named Shaft. Bumpy pins the blame on a pesky squad of black militants led by a cat named Ben Buford. But dig this. Shaft heads uptown to visit Buford and his jive-ass militants, only for some heavy thugs with Tommy guns to drop in and shoot the place up to the tune of four dead militants and one dead finger man. Shaft isn't dealing with amateurs like Ben Buford anymore. Detective Vic lets Shaft in on little knowledge. Shaft's the guy they're after, not Ben Buford. And Shaft has been put in the middle of a budding war between the Mafia and Bumpy Jonas's crew, which could kick off a race war in Manhattan. Nobody wants that, except for maybe Ben Buford, and it's up to Shaft to stop the race war and save Bumpy's daughter, all while dodging hitmen, cops, and various other nefarious dudes. Shaft, always the smartest cat in the room, pays off a hippie to go turn his lights on, then gets the drop on two Philadelphia heavies sent to Ison. He turns them over to the cops, but not before finding out where Bumpy's daughter is being held captive. Shaft and Buford go after her, but Shaft gets shot up and Marcy gets taken away. Shaft gets fixed up by a street doctor, gets back in touch with Bumpy, and gets a gang of Ben's militants together to undertake a commando-style raid on the hotel where Marcy's being held captive. Shaft and the militants infiltrate the hotel, kill the mobsters, and rush Marcy out into a waiting car. Shaft calmly walks away from the hotel as police cars come rushing in, hops in the payphone, and drops a little knowledge in Detective Androsi's ear about the upcoming fight between the gangsters. Shaft tells Vic, fix it yourself, shitty, and laughs hysterically, walking away while credits roll. That is a very good summary of a lot that goes on, and I appreciate the uh, lingo that you have adopted to try and talk through this and demand that you keep that up the entire review. So <laughs> to see if you can pull that off now. So. Man, so much to get into here, but honestly, the thing that strikes me about this one is really just how straightforward it is. It's kind of simple. You know, Shaft is a private detective who has eh, tense relations, but seems to have at least one ally with the, the cops. And he's well known in his community and the local drug kingpin his daughter gets kidnapped and Shaft has to come in and save the day. And then we get, you know, throw away extras from the Godfather, uh, to, uh, come over and, and have a little bit of, uh, war in the streets. Well, it's, um, established pretty early on that Shaft has, um, one foot on the streets and one foot in Whitey's crawl. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, he and there's some allusion to uh, Shaft and Andrazi going back a ways and being friends and uh, knowing each other due to uh, previous events where they've come into contact with one another. But it seems like pretty much everybody uh, on the street 
knows Shaft and knows who Shaft is because he is recognized and talked to by pretty much everybody he comes into contact with. Yeah, and and I get the sense that because that is somewhat because he stays around the same like eight blocks. It seems like like he just has sort of his territory that he works and. That's where he stays. And I I don't know if they ever said it. I can't remember it coming out, but I got the sense that like Shaft was a cop at one time and then had gotten out of that racket because, and maybe I'm just placing that onto this because that's part of the story of the Samuel L. Jackson Shaft is that he starts out as a cop and then ends up going into business for himself when Christian Bale, you know, screws with his head a little bit. Um, but I, I got the sense that like Shaft had been a cop or, you know, had some relationship with Androsi at least. And he sort of operates in this area and he gets tips from the cops. He's always talking to the cops about what he's got going on. And I mean, I guess when you, you know, people, you kill people and throw them out your window, that's, that's, you, you do get to talk to the cops often. And I know in, at least in New York, uh, private detectives have to be like licensed and, uh, they have to get permission to carry firearms. So I imagine he does have some kind of, uh, if not law enforcement background, then he's got connections to the law enforcement community. Something, um, yeah. I mean, he he flashed his badge to, at one time, which and he seems to stick between uh, like Forty Second Street and uh, like Greenwich Village. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so kind of like the Lower West Side ish. Yeah, I mean, he stays in a certain area, but it gives this movie a a sense though where you can have a location but it still feels very open and i feel like like better versions of grand theft auto the video game kind of take from the same idea here is that you you give people a world to play around in that feels open yet you can get familiar with it like you can walk around enough in those open world games and figure out okay that's where the you know stash is that's where my hideout is that's where i'm gonna go rob next you know whatever i'm gonna do or that's where i've got to go kill my rival gangsters etc no that's that's definitely a fair comparison and it's kind of a nod to uh, basically to how new york is laid out it's laid out it's essentially a series of neighborhoods. And if you live in a particular neighborhood, you don't really have to go outside of that area. Mm-hmm. Uh, like if you're in downtown Brooklyn, there's like, because it's so hard to get around in New York, um, you develop a network of places that you can walk to from where you're at. That are your, like, that's your newsstand. That's yeah. your uh, grocery store. You know, that's your bar, that's your, uh, that's your diner. Um, and it kind of adds to that. Like I imagine it was much worse, much more like that even back then. Oh goodness. Yeah. I mean, think about, you know, I grew up in the South, so it was, it was all, you know, I, I dare say suburbs cause that's not really it. Like you're in the middle of woods that have been carved out into neighborhoods and there might be a highway <laughs> rolling through them. Now it's very different nowadays, of course. But when I grew up in the late seventies or early eighties and things, you know, through the eighties and things, it, there was, you had to go, you know, somewhere to get to the grocery store, to get to the mall. To do, you had to go places. But a big city, and the thing that, like, New York always 
captivated me with was how it was laid out. It was just big grids and you didn't have to go more than just a little ways and you had everything you could ever want inside of, you know, your neighborhood. And I, I used to think about, man, how cool would that be to live in a place like that? And, you know, nowadays, like Amazon will just bring it to me so I don't have to go anywhere. But <laughs> back, back in those days, you know, that I mean, I could see the appeal and why, why people dug that. So it's, I don't know, it's very cool. It gives this this film a real setting, though, because that cool walk down 42nd Street that opens up the movie, it sets everything in terms of tone that you need to know about this film. It lays all of it out and the number of people that talk to Shaft, how he carries himself. That one guy tries to sell him a stolen watch or a hot watch or whatever, and he flashes that badge. I'm like, PIs don't have badges. They have, you know, little pieces of paper, but whatever. You know, that's, that's what we go. And he, like, the guy just runs away like a scalded rabbit. And it's like, okay, you know, I get it. You know, that this guy is, is so bad that the bad guys won't mess with him. The good guys talk to him and he can just walk and roam free and wait for stuff to happen. Yeah, it's it's a great it's really between that and the the opening theme song that's one of the like one of my favorite movie opening montages like ever. And I think that's part of the uh it it kind of reminds me a little bit of like the scene in um uh, Urban Cowboy. Yeah. Not Ur- is it Urban Cowboy? Yeah. John Voighton. Yeah. Urban Cowboy. Yeah. Yeah. Urban Cowboy. It reminds me a little bit like they took this idea of the guy just walking through the streets and they, they applied it to Urban Cowboy, even down to like the jaywalking. Yeah. I mean, uh, well, I mean, taxi driver, there's all kinds of stuff that you could think, you know, borrowed from this or went from this, right? Like that's just what they, uh, what they went for. But again, it sets a scene, not urban cow, urban cowboys, the John Travolta movie. Um, <laughs> so, so, Midnight I was like, cowboy. I was like, not urban cowboy. yeah, I was like, wait, that didn't sound right. Hold on. So, <laughs> well, it, it makes more cow- sense. It does make it, more sense. Yeah. It makes more sense in the second movie when Shaft meets Drinkenstein. <laughs> oh man. I can't believe he dropped Drinkenstein in here. So, but anyway, so, uh, uh, that's not even a Travolta film. So <laughs> that's a Stallone. But anyway, uh, we get, we do get introduced though, real quick to the, the heavy of the, of the movie. Um, who's, I mean, he's sort of like the, the anti-hero bad guy, Bumpy Jonas, right? Cause two of his goons come in to, you know, talk to Shaft. And what you realize real quick is that there are, sets of organized crime here there's the italian organized crime which is the godfather style stuff and then there's the african-american harlem style organized crime and bumpy is the leader of all of that and when he wants to talk to you you're gonna go talk to him unless you're shaft and you're bad and let's not bury the lead that one of uh bumpy's uh henchmen is uh I believe it's the guy who was like a trainer for Muhammad Ali, but I could be, it could be a different. Oh, I didn't, I I didn't realize that. Wow. It would make sense. Yes. He was one of Muhammad Ali's trainers and he wrote uh, a bunch of the stuff that like Ali used in his talks. Oh, really? I did. Well, that makes total sense. Cause I, I was sitting here going like, man, it would have been cool if Ali just kind of walked across and said, Hey shaft at some point. Cause it does have a lot of that same feel. Uh, to it, but Roundtree here, man. I the thing I like about seventies movies is how 
the editing, they decided to show good fighting sequences. You just have to like cut everything up where it's real disjointed. So it feels like you're a part of the fight. Like if you're in a fight, you don't really remember who walked where and stood where. You just know that there was a punch thrown and stuff went down. And that's the way this comes off. And I, 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 you know, quarter that again on a style of filmmaking that's just gone now. We don't, we don't do that anymore. But in those days, it worked and it works here when he, you know, gets the one guy and beats him down and the other guy flies by him, you know, literally uh, out the window. Yeah, it is, it is a, a really cool style. It, it, it kind of came back for a little bit in the 2000s with like uh, Paul Greengrass, uh, like the Flight 97 and like the, uh, the early Bourne movies where there's kind of like a hectic, shaky camera but yeah. th- but that it's more about moving the camera and less about doing a bunch of cuts yeah because i mean in this case like the, you know even if they were filming with a steady cam which i don't think they were back in those days you know it was all about cutting the film up now you just you shake the screen give everybody vertigo but and, and make them sick but uh, this way it it comes off again more uh, frenetic and I, I kind of like that that feel of it because the one thing I'll say about Shad's like there's a lot of crazy stuff that goes down around him and there's some pretty wicked action and things like that but he never like his pulse never gets above 75 <laughs> like he is so cool and I know that is like a trope of the character but to see it playing out scene by scene I'm like man Roundtree really does play this cool and that's I'm gonna ask you who is this guy besides Shaft I don't know anything about him who Richard Roundtree? Yeah, um, I think that's been his big role. Um, I know before this he did like commercials and like print ads and stuff, uh, but mostly he's uh, best known for uh, well, he's best known for two things. He's known best for being Shaft. Uh, I mean, he was on Roots. Uh, he did uh, City Heat with uh, Eastwood, Clint Eastwood and Burt Reynolds. He's also one of the rare male breast cancer survivors. Uh, but yeah, basically he was uh, like, this is still his biggest role and his best known role. I mean, I remember like the cameo he had in Seven, you know, which that's a Fincher thing is to take, you know, former stars and just kind of plot them and pepper them through his movies. But he's in that like two scenes. So it's not that big of a deal. He, he really is the one where he's sitting down talking to somebody. But um, I, again, I, the guy is just the epitome of what I would call seventies. Cool. You know, like he, yeah. you know, he's always dressed, you know, he, he's not dressed up, but he's dressed well and he's dressed slick. And it's like, he's always hyper aware of everything around him. Um, so it's kind of like a black Wolverine or something, you know what I mean? Like he just knows where everything's going to happen next and he's always able to make the move. And when we get that standoff later, um, where the guys have got guns on them and stuff like that. And when it all goes to hell, he's still able to get out of it alive and take one of them down with him. And I was like, man, this guy is, is really tough. And they, and they play him off as this tough guy. I mean, again, the, you know, the tough cop in a, you know, or the tough law enforcement official protagonist, whatever against the bad guys. That's a, an age old story. Like we see that all the time. Right. But the way he plays it is there's an underlying cool to it that you usually don't get with those other guys. It's like, he's a guy, uh, he's a guy who's seen a lot, uh, and, and been through a lot. 
Um, yeah, it's not in there, but like I kind of took in my head, I'm like this guy was in the either the Korean War or was in in Nam and had come back, and like none of this was going to phase him anymore. You know, I mean, we were at the in the the middle, the height of the Vietnam War at this point, so it's one of the reasons cinema is so dark and gritty in the seventies is that everything seemed to suck, you know, <laughs> around you, and people came back and it had a really awful experience and needed some way to outlet and deal with it. So I, I sort of in my own head just made that little retcon. They never say it. And I don't know if that's part of the character or not, but I could see it. Like it makes sense. Yeah. It definitely feels like there is some kind of backstory there that we're not getting because he does seem to he doesn't do a pretty good job of planning that uh, commando mission later on. So, yeah, that kind of leads me to think that him and probably a good portion of the militants have some kind of uh, military experience have been to Vietnam or something. But that's what I thought basically about Ben Buford and his whole crew, that these were a bunch of guys who had been radicalized and uh, once they came back from Vietnam and were, you know, oh, yeah. pushed up into the you know, the, the, the worst neighborhood in Manhattan at that time. Yeah. Well, I mean, and can I just tell you, Christopher St. John as Ben Buford almost steals this movie for me. He is so good as the anti-hero, you know, militant on the side. Like he's a bad guy. He's a criminal by all, you know, rights and, and, uh, definitions. But you know, the enemy, my enemy is my friend sometimes. And that's what happens here. And he, he turns out to be a very useful, um, ally when Shaft needs to go and, and make the final raid and everything. And I mean, he's part of all of it to begin with. But I, I mean, I like that, that he's not just cookie cutter militant too. He's smart. Like he talks about, like, if I'm going to do this, you know, you got to pay my guys. You got to pay you. We got to do this. You know, like he's planning ahead. And I thought, I, again, I thought he gave a, a fantastic performance. Yeah, he's he's really good. And uh, Christopher St. John was actually a member of the actor studio oh, wow. in New York. So yeah, he is not he is not a lightweight uh, by any sense of the word. Now you can definitely tell like he knows what. It's, and apparently, not much of an actor. Like he went on to be a director and things like that, and uh, did a few uh, other spots. But this is his biggest role. And I'm like, man, this guy's really good. So I uh, I enjoyed watching him and watching Shaft play off of him too, because Shaft, I almost think like Shaft looks at him like this is a younger me, you know, cause we don't, it's not sad, but like I take Shaft for like late thirties, early forties in this movie, you know, so he's been around a little while, but he's not out of the game yet. But Buford's definitely a, a kid in his twenties. Yeah. De- Buford is definitely uh, played younger uh, than Shaft. And I could I could see that, or I could see Buford being a more idealistic version of Young Shaft. Like, yeah. this might have been Young Shaft before uh, Shaft realized just how messed up the world is. Well, and or just how complicated it all is. And that's the thing. Like, th- three-fourths of this movie is you don't know that Bumpy's trying to get Shaft to intervene in this race war. That's basically what's happening. And the fact that his daughter gets kidnapped as part of it is just part of the Italian goons uh, way of, of doing business and stuff. But the cops know. And Vic tells him early on, like, look, this there's a race war going on, or you're going to get in the middle of it. And I, I like that, that it's a little bit of a, an unraveling mystery for us. But once you know that and have seen it, you can watch the movie with a different... Ah, 
And you can see Shaft not figuring all of it out. And that that kind of vulnerability makes for your protagonist to be much more relatable. Because what's the, the trope about all these movies is that, you know, Schwarzenegger and Stallone can never do any wrong as cops, right? Or when they do anything, like they're just, they're perfect, right? And the thing that made Die Hard work was that Bruce Willis looked like you. You know, and he just got into some real difficult stuff. Now he ended up doing some insane things in that movie, but in the beginning of it in particular, he's just a dude. And, you know, Roundtree's a, you know, a good looking guy and he's pretty well built and stuff, but he's not some specimen out there, you know, so it's. No, he's not like Jim Brown. Exactly. Yeah. He's not Jim Brown. He's not Muhammad Ali. You know, he's not Carl Weathers. He's not one of those. He just looks like a guy that could handle himself, but he still has to think and figure it out. And I mean, heck, we get to see him get shot and all kinds of stuff here. So the, the neat part of this is that when you realize that this is all about one guy really has to intervene and stop a race war, which is, Pretty insane when you think about it. Yeah, because he is uh, he is basically perfectly positioned between these two polar opposite worlds. Yeah, uh, and he's he's like the only one who can move between the two. Yeah, you said that early on that you know he's got one foot you know in the white world and one foot in in his own world uh, too, and I think he that's on purpose because he knows you know life is not black and white; it's pretty complicated. And if I'm going to survive, especially if you're a private detective, you're pretty much a you know a small business owner. You're in business for yourself, so you're always out looking for stuff, and you you want to be the kind of person that has the reputation that anybody can come to you. And I mean, we see that he- several times. Yeah, and we see throughout the movie that he knows everyone. Yeah. Uh, basically, regardless of, of who they are or what they do or, or, you know, what their race, age, ethnicity, etc., he is like the, the universal uh, kind of go-between. Everybody – like he talks to the the guys at the shoe shine shop. He talks to the old blind guy at the newspaper agent. Uh, he talks – like he's friends with the gay bartender. He's friends with the mm-hmm. that that uh, burned out hippie. Yeah, he goes uh, and gives a kid you know ten bucks so he can go get something to eat. You know, because he sees he's yeah, cold he, on the street and he knows he's his helping parents. out the kids. Yeah, he's, exactly. I mean, he's the unofficial mayor of Harlem, is what you, what it is. I mean, that's kind of what we see here about Shaft is that he he's the community director before we knew what those things were or we had those right. Like this is who this guy would be. And it's just, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, a testament or kind of a, like a, a nod to what, what is a later a trope about how every cop has an informant or whatever. Right. Uh, especially in like seventies TV shows like uh Starsky and Hutch or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, Shaft can get information from all these different communities that don't usually, you know, interact with each other. Well, and that's the thing is he gets that information because they don't realize they're interacting with each other. You know, they're just telling Shaft and they trust Shaft. So I wouldn't tell Androsi nothing, but I'll tell Shaft. Now, Shaft goes and tell Androsi, well, that's fine because Shaft told him. You know, like it's that go between. Again, he's that perfect vessel that can plug in between all these places. And that, I mean, it comes out to be that's perfect because it, it allows him to. Uh, put together the group that goes and saves the the daughter and saves the day in the end, but not before they go through a whole lot of hell. I mean, when when he goes to uh, 
Ben's place to begin with and all those guys get shot up. I did not expect, I didn't see that coming. All the Tommy guns and everything. I was like, man, I'm in a Godfather movie all of a sudden. And I, I had forgotten. Oh yeah, that's right. The Italian mob are involved in this too. Well, this is kind of the thing that announces the presence of the mob. Cause up until this time, uh, Bumpy is pinning it on the militants. Right. But, Shaft, but, Shaft, but he I doesn't, think, doesn't but, but what we learn is that he knows that's bullshit. Like, Bumpy knows that's not right. He's just trying to get Shaft to get the militants on his side. Or he was trying to get Shaft to take the militants down for him. Well, yeah, either there, or. Yeah. There is there is a lot of tension between Bumpy's crew and the militants. Um, True. And, and they make a point to say that Bumpy controls Harlem, except for these few blocks that the militants control. Yeah. So, so I'm thinking that... Uh, Bumpy was hoping to use Shaft as a misdirect or to get the mafia to go after Shaft and to take out these militants. If there's anything that's lacking in this film, it is the mafia end of things. They do just appear to cause havoc and and to be things to shoot at in a lot of ways. Like there's no scene of the mafia guy going, now this is what we got to do with these guys, you know, or anything like that. Like that. And maybe this movie purposely left that out and didn't want to do it. But I was sitting there wondering, like, I, you know, I just needed one scene. There's enough scenes of people sitting around talking to each other. Goodness sakes. You couldn't have one where, you know, the Italian guys were like plotting because they just seemed to be there to be pure evil and shoot things up at all times. Well, I think that's kind of what uh, Vic's role is. Is that what that is? It, well, but he's the cop. So, yeah, he's the cop, but he's also the guy who knows that the mafia is moving. Oh, that's and yeah. That they that they do see these mobsters come into town, and he's the guy who tells Chef that those mobsters are here for him and not for Ben or for Bumpy. Yeah, and and it does lead to that great scene later where Shaft calls him from the bar, and they have that little code back and forth so that you know the two guys can't get the drop on him. Which I I like that. I thought that was smart, uh, but I I don't know. I I just feel like they're underdeveloped. If anything is in this movie, yeah, I could. Uh, I can see there, but I also don't think that they're really meant to be developed because I don't think that's the audience that they're looking for. Oh, no, and that that is very true. It is not for them to to be a part of this. I mean, this is about people that want to see Shaft and want to see this this community really take care of its own. I mean, that's what's happening here, right? I mean, and let's – I mean, just get into it, the politics of the 70s here or whatever. This is a, a very – different time than what we live in now but yet there's a lot of things still going on today that relate yeah that's um that's a really good point and it's interesting because the um in the source material in the the book the original book uh shaft is white interesting i didn't know that but gordon parks changed um changed Shaft to Black once he cast Richard Roundtree, which hmm. kind of changes the whole tone of the film. Uh, yeah, it gives it a different tone. Well, I, I, you know, I'm almost intrigued to go read that now to see how it would play and how different it is from what... Uh, have you read it? Do you know how different it is than the film that we got? I have not read it, but he did write like eight books or something with Shaft as this, a main character. Yeah, I knew there were like a series of Shaft books, but... Well, and, like after, and like after the... Uh, and like after the success of the movie, Shaft uh, 
because the the movie was sold basically before the book came out. Not an uncommon like, thing, though. Like you know, anticipated books have have often gotten movie deals. I mean, John Grisham. I think half of his films were about books he hadn't written yet. <laughs> so yeah, and uh, like basically, he went to um, the producers with the idea and some storyboards and sold mm-hmm. the book, and then when they were working on the script, him and the director Gordon Parks and uh, the other screenwriter John F. Uh, John Black all kind of worked on it together to give it that uh, kind of give it that feel and uh, kind of uh, well, that shift the, the character. Yeah. That changes the dynamic of it though completely when you th- if you think about it like that. But in this case, I mean, again, it's a, I, you know, we don't, we don't need anybody's help. We can handle our own. That seems to be a big theme of everything. It's the theme of the militants. It's certainly what, you know, Bumpy wants to be left alone and just run his little kingdom. And then there's Shaft who's like, mm, you can do that, Jack, but you're going to have to, you know, work with the man some too. And that's, that's his role is to be the go-between. He's the liaison, if you will. Yeah, he's the uh, he's the guy who is uh, kind of in all these worlds, uh, and he's the guy who kind of uh, he both smooths everything out and kind of brings both sides together against the the mafia, their bigger enemy. Because you get the impression, at least from this movie, that Bumpy and his crew are not good people, but the mafia would be worse. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's that one scene where where Shaft comes in to see Bumpy and his guys want to frisk him. He's like, "You need six more because it ain't happening," you know. And <laughs> and you know, Bumpy finally uh, uh, says, "I'll send him in." And then that goon says, "You know, one day we're going to tangle Shaft." And Shaft's like, "Yeah, right." You know, like man, I, yeah, that's uh, that's Boudini Brown, that's yeah, Willie. Yeah, I was like, well, that's fantastic. So I was like, that that was a great scene, though. But what you realize too, and this is the cool thing about this movie, is that they find Marcy in the second act. Like usually, that's the end of the movie, right? But no, they find her and they get to her, and then we get that standoff and that gunfight. You know, out of nowhere where Shaft gets hurt, and that's when he has to go, you know, full commando uh, to go get her again. But I liked that they set that up where he actually gets to her and then she just slips through his fingers. And I'm like, that's a seventies thing. Like, you know, eighties mm-hmm. and nineties and you know beyond movies, it was always, you, you never got close to your target or to your goal at the end, the princess at the end of the Mario level, whatever, you know, but it, this in the seventies, you, you would get close and fail and then you would come back and get it. I mean, Rocky's built on that. He gets beat and then he comes back and wins. I mean, that's that's the whole uh, premise there. And I liked that idea that, again, it, it made the lead character vulnerable. He wasn't perfect. You know, he didn't have it all worked out and he couldn't talk his way out of everything. Sometimes he was going to have to have some help. And this is when he went and got it. Yeah. And it's it's interesting because Shaft is also kind of a figure of like upward mobility because he's got a really nice apartment. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, it, it, the money so he gets out of so, Bumpy, I'm, I'm like, you know, in, in those days, $20,000 was a lot of money. Nowadays, that's like fifty. But I'm like, this didn't seem to like the first time Shaft did negotiations on a job. You know, <laughs> no. like you, you called their sequel was called Shaft's Big Score. I'm like, I thought that was this. I mean, <laughs> that would set this guy up for years. Yeah, but he... It's interesting because he's we we talk we're talking a lot about his ability to move in between worlds, but he is 
doing so, and he's doing so in in a very successful way. He's not like he talks to the cops, but he doesn't sell out to the cops. He talks to to Bumpy, but he doesn't sell out to Bumpy or his men. He's very much the kind of the it's like a combination of like the rogue cop and like the action hero in the yeah. sense that he does things his own way. He gets results and he's doing well enough that later when the police have to lean on him a little bit and tells him, look, if you if we do take you in for this manslaughter thing, yeah, maybe you'll get away with it. Uh, maybe you won't go to jail, but you'll be out of business because you will have six months or eight months or a year where you won't be able to work. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But, and again, that's why you see Shaft, and you made a good point and a good phrase is he doesn't sell out to either side, you know, and he doesn't have to. And that's the thing is in the end, like I, I asked myself, actually, I was like, does he kind of go over to the dark side to get the job done here? I was like, no, not really. I mean, he always seemed to want to have Ben's guys involved from the get go because that was going to be a way to try to foster peace between the militants and Bumpy because he sees the value in you two don't need to kill each other because again, the mob would be worse. Yeah. And it's kind of bringing together like not quite bringing together two sides of the community, but like definitely keeping them from eating their own, so to speak. Well, I mean, look, let's talk about what was going on in the seventies. You have to bring Martin Luther King Jr.'s followers with um, Farrakhan and Malcolm X's followers to accomplish the same goal. Those are different sides of a similar coin, but they go about things very differently. Right. So how do you get the Baptists and the radicals to be in the same room together? You know, that's that. I mean, that's really what he's doing. So, uh, which by the way, you can't. So don't. So, but, but anyway, in this movie, it works long enough that it gets through. And I, but what I love about the showdown in the end is that, I mean, they, they have that whole bit where they dress like hotel workers to avoid suspicion, you know, and it, Shaft goes through the guy's window on the roof. And I'm like, John McClane totally ripped that off. I was like, yeah, once again, the white man rips off something good. But I mean, really, I was like, I've seen this, this action scene in 50 other movies and had no idea it came from here. Yeah, it's, and it almost comes off like, like a dirty dozen type of scene. Very much. Well, I'm glad you said that. Cause I, I was like wild bunch, dirty dozen, like all of that is what's happening here. Yeah. And it's, um, it, it, it works really well. I think like, I think it's really well executed. And that's one of the, the things I can say about this movie is that, uh, Gordon Parks makes it look great despite not taking the grit from it. Yeah. And, I don't know if you know anything about his background or if you've looked into his background, but he was like a photographer in World War II. He was he worked for like Vogue doing fashion shoots. He shot for Life magazine like he is a world. He was a world renowned photographer. I see. And that makes total sense. And I didn't look it up because I knew I knew you would, honestly. But I I said to myself, I was like, whoever made like the director and the DP here, like these are people that understand how to use a camera. And like for $500,000, this movie looks amazing. And I mean, for something that's, what are we talking about here now, Ron? It's 47 years old as mm-hmm. of this recording, right? Still, yeah. still works. I mean, like it, it definitely looks like it's part of its time and it should, but it, I don't, I don't get taken out of the movie by the way it looks. 
You know, like not at all. Like I, I watch this movie and I, it just sort of happens because everything looks so good. The colors are good. The scenes are good. And again, they do a good job with the, even like sound design here too. You know, everything just matches and works. And that's, uh, if you get a chance, watch it again and, and try to look at how the the like the the actual scene composition where people are placed in scenes, because it is like it. This is one of those movies that's a, like an every frame's a painting type of movie to me. Oh, I I uh, agree like, with you. And like I, for example, yeah. the the last big conversation between uh, Bumpy, Ben, and Shaft. You've got uh, Ben on one side, Bumpy in the middle with his feet kicked up, and then Shaft on the other shoulder. And it's just a really cool looking shot because it's kind of like a these three different communities. Well, it's these three different communities all coming together, but it's like these three instincts. There's the kind of the the militant way. The there's the just the capitalist like I'm doing this to get my money type of way, and then there's the we're all just trying to survive here type of way. Right, exactly. And again, Shaft is it he's not literally in the middle of them, but he is in the middle of them, but the way that that shoots, you can see and the and the way I took that uh, scene in particular, Bumpy's the one that looks relaxed. Shaft and Ben are a little tense. And I'm like, Bumpy's the other guy that like he never gets overly emotional about it even when it involves his daughter. And I mean, you can tell he adores her. There's like a thousand photographs of her up in his office, right? But he's yeah. not going to let that, you know, cloud his judgment. It's like, we got to be smart about this. It's the way these things are done, you know? And I'm like, man, this is a guy who you wonder if, you know, he hasn't dealt with this sometime before, you know? And yeah, there's, yeah. Or, he's or on the other those... side, hasn't been the kidnapper and done this. Oh, I have, I have no doubt he has been, but he's very much like he says, he's like, you know, I can always get more money, but I can't get another daughter. But at the same time, he's not willing to go too crazy spending his money. Yeah. I mean, he'll, he'll do a little bit. He's like, that's all I can do, you know? And it's like, I mean, and again, we're talking about sums of money that look, that sounds like a lot of money to me now in 1971. That was a whole lot of money. (laughs) And I mean, that would have been like, you got that just laying around to, you know, deal with kidnapping problems. Holy cow. Yeah, especially since it's just going to be a stack of cash. I mean, yeah. And I mean, it is straight cash. (laughs) I was like, wow. So somebody needs to talk to Bumpy about interest rates and, you know, long-term annuity. But I guess they didn't do that back in the day. Well, you know what? (laughs) The interest rate sucked into the seventies like it does now. So never mind. Keep it in your, keep it in your, uh, sock drawer. It probably gains just as much. But, (laughs) (laughs) but no, I, I love how, you know, it goes down in the end. Um, Ben and his men come down the hall, they deal with the mafia, you know, they, they shoot them all up. Everybody's done. And, uh, I like how, you know, Shaft walks away and I, I did get a kick out of that last phone conversation with the, the lieutenant, like, no, you cleaned it up. You know, like I'm done, (laughs) you cleaned it up and he just walks away and it's like, well, that's it, you know? And, uh, but I I mean, again, I, I thought that was great. Um, because this is another thing the seventies would do is you'd, you'd stop on a frame and just the sound would continue on. And I was like, yeah, this is, it was the right ending for the movie when it, when it happened. And then that theme song kicks in. I mean, you know, a lot has been said about that. We talked about it a little bit, but man, Isaac Hayes, uh, I know a lot of people only know him as chef. 
you know, from South Park or whatever, but the man was a musician and could weave a tapestry with words and sound. And that funk song is amazing. Oh yeah. It's one of the, uh, it's like one of the biggest and most popular movie themes that has ever been. Like it's always on those AFI top 100 movie theme lists and, and stuff. So, and, and with good reason. And in a couple of years when Isaac Hayes makes his acting debut, they will bill him as the Oscar winner, Isaac Hayes. Yeah. Cause he wins the Oscar for the theme for shaft. <laughs> he did not win an Oscar for his acting, <laughs> but you know what though? Now, well, and there's a reason for that. Cause he's not a grand actor, but this theme it totally works as well as this movie works too. So Rome, we're at the part of the podcast where it's time to get final thoughts and popcorn ratings. So what are yours for shaft? Oh, I'm going to give Shaft a large popcorn. Uh, like you said, it, it is one of the movies that holds up the best from this time period. Uh, it it doesn't indulge in what you will see later in the 70s with, uh, you know, that 70s pacing where everything just kind of feels to move slower. Um it's quick and dirty, but at no point is it unpleasant to look at. It looks great throughout the whole thing. Um, the theme music is great. I think two of the songs for the soundtrack were actually nominated for the Oscar for best song and the theme from Shaft One, obviously. But the other, the one of the other songs in the movie was also nominated. Um, and yeah, it's. There's a reason that this helped launch a genre. I mean, Melvin Van Peebles is going to say that Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song did it. But this was in production while he was still making his movie. So you could it, – it's a very reasonable thing to do to claim that this is the godfather of the black exploitation movie genre. And it also is kind of uh, – it is – Almost like a, like if if the first Die Hard did, didn't involve Hans Gruber and it was just like John McClane, uh, fighting crime on the streets of New York, it could it could very much have felt like this movie. So yeah, I'm large popcorn. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and then I'm glad to have had an excuse to watch it again. Yeah, I, I'm going to join you in the large popcorn. This movie's fantastic. If it's the godfather of anything, it's the godfather of action cop movies. I mean, it really is. Like, all of them owe something to this. And, and I don't say that until, like, oh, there wouldn't be if there weren't for this. I'm just saying this is a good movie. And if you haven't seen it, if you're like me, and if you, maybe you only saw it once or didn't really remember it, or if you've never seen it, you, folks, you need to go watch this. Like, this is one you need to seek out and watch. This is worth seeing. Every frame's amazing looking, like Ron and I've said. The music's great. The action's great. But the thing about it is, unlike a lot of 70s movies, and you nailed it, Ron, this one isn't laborious at all. Like, when it ended, I was like, that's it? I was like, oh, man. Like, I wanted more. <laughs> and not so much that I want to go watch those two badly named sequels, but I, I was like, yeah, there should be more to this. Like, But in Legacy, there is more. There's a lot more to it. I'll go ahead and put it in there too. That 2000 version of Shaft isn't half bad. I'm going to say the first act of that doesn't work that well. It's pretty, pretty lousy. But after that, it turns into a good movie and, and the back two ends of it are, are pretty good. So if, especially if you want to see Christian Bale be like a really 
good bad guy, um, you need to go watch that. So much better than his American Psycho performance, which everybody just loves, and that movie sucks. But I'm telling you, he's so good in that. In that. Oh, and, hard, hard disagree. Oh, well, okay, <laughs> on you American did, Psycho, anyway. Hold, hold that thought on American Psycho. But yeah, the, the Stanford <laughs> remake's good, but the original is where it starts. You need to check that out. So large popcorn for sure. So well, we said we were going to do it, Ron. We were going to tell people what else we were talking about during our month of February here. So what else are we reviewing now that we've done Shaft? Well, uh, the next movie will probably be the comedy black exploitation, uh, possibly a spoof from 1975. None other than the human tornado himself, Dolomite. We are going to take a more modern look at that kind of spoof with the one of my favorite movies of the last like 10 years and one of the funniest comedies to come out in a long, long time, Black Dynamite. That's Michael J. White from uh, Michael Spawn. Michael J. White from Spawn. And, and Dark Knight if you haven't seen Spawn. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, and he is one of the Foot Clan uh, kids in the original – Ninja Turtles movie from the 90s, if I, you didn't know that. I did not know that. Holy cow. Now I almost want to go watch that. Almost. So <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> yeah, maybe and of not. course, we're going, to, uh, we're going to finish it up with the one of the first black exploitation superheroes turned uh, big budget movie icon in Black Panther. Yeah, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, man. Uh, we, you know, we usually Kurt handles that for us with Favish Factor stuff, but we we both said, nope, we're doing Black Panther. We we called dibs on that. I love Chadwick Boseman. I don't think I've ever seen him anything I didn't like him in. So when he appeared as Black Panther in the Captain America film, I was like, oh yes, you know. And, I, and then I found out he was doing his own, and everything I've seen about that looks amazing. So I'm I'm looking forward to that one. I know what like the trope of Dolomite. I had never seen it before, before our review and I'd never heard of black dynamite. So I'm, I'm going to be the, I'm, I'm oh. happy to have a month of basically being the newbie for everything here. So. Yeah. yeah I'm very excited. I, I've been pestering you about Dolomite for weeks now. <laughs> and I'm very excited to hear your thoughts on it. Oh, I definitely have some. Folks can tune in next week to hear that. Of course, you can always find our episodes on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com slash movies. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcast. If you like the show, leave us a positive review. It helps other people find the show. We appreciate your support. We've got a huge back catalog now, folks. And I mean, you know, if you go back all the way back to like 2009, 2010, like I'm not going to lie, some of those podcasts aren't that good, but we've got some good movies we talk about, but we've been, we've been doing this for a long time now. So we're almost at 300 reviews, which is amazing for me to think about that. There's that much of me talking about movies on the internet, uh, somewhere. Um, so, so anyway, if you like the show, folks, check it out, leave us a review. You can of course follow us on uh, the social media. You can find me on Twitter at J Newcastle CPP and Ron, you're at Hollywood Ron, right? Yes, sir. All right. So check us out. Uh, leave us a review. Let us know what you think of the show. We appreciate your support. Until next time, sucker, we'll see you on Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com forward slash movies. Please leave us a positive review on iTunes and link up with us on Facebook. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake. 121.